0: Uh, but that means that I, today, will be continuing our Unbalanced series. And our topic for today is ignoring the impact that the past has on your present. And I heard that topic, and at first I thought, well, duh. What, what am I going to do? I'm going to get up here and I'm going to say, your past influences you. All right, great sermon. Like. And then I got to thinking about it, and I, I started having this repeat in my head. It was going... Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to preach that. No, no, no. This is actually really convicting and challenging and hard. And so I have brought Play-Doh. <laughs> and we're not going to get to the Play-Doh just yet, but it's really fun to touch. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to do that for a second. So I have brought Play-Doh to try to soften it up. I also thought we could start... I need to slide this. That's just in the way. I also thought we could start soft and sort of ramp up in intensity about how the past impacts our present. So how many of you have ever seen a sci-fi movie that has time travel in it or read a book with time travel in it, right? That's a pretty common trope, and every time that somebody gets in the machine to go back in time, the, the person in charge always tells them not to do what, Don't change the past. Don't step on the butterfly. Don't meet yourself. Because intrinsically, we all understand that if you mess with the past, it impacts the the future, which is your present. So you don't want to go back and mess something up and then you show up and you don't even exist. So we have that in sci-fi movies. We all get that. I think we also pretty intrinsically understand Well, we'll keep doing hands up. How many of you have parents? There's a couple of hands that didn't go up, which is a whole different sci-fi movie, but... If you have parents, how many of you have ever had that terrifying moment where you realize you are acting like your mom or dad? Where that... Yes. Where that phrase comes out of your mouth... And it's almost an out-of-body experience, and you're watching yourself, and you're just going, no. <laughs> and if you're not, maybe you're not old enough yet that you've actually started acting like your parents, but I bet that means you've had the moment where your parent has done something to you, and you say, I will never do that to my kids. I will never say that. I will. And then, sure enough, down the road, you have that out-of-body experience, and you're your parent. Right? So we're ratcheting up in intensity here. Oh, gosh. For those of you who have kids, who have your own children, have you ever been observing your own children, and they do that same absolutely annoying thing that your spouse does, that their mother or father, have you ever seen that annoying habit in your own kids? And then of course, if we're ratcheting up in intensity, have you ever... Have you ever had to look your kid dead in the eye and punish them for acting like you? Where do you think they got it from? So we know, we get it. Intrinsically, we understand that the past impacts our present. That our family life that we grew up in impacts our present. That the location of the country or the world that we were accidentally born into impacts our are present. And luckily, I will say luckily because I like my in-laws, luckily my in-laws were over yesterday and I got to pick Trisha's brain, my wife's brain, and her mother's brain about how do you two act like each other and how do you act like your grandma. and how So I have this whole list of mostly approved stories <laughs> of how my wife's family has impacted each other. felt like a golf swing there. That's probably not what a golf swing looks like, right? <laughs> My family didn't play golf. So, so I want to I keep doing some safe ones. I want to get everybody sort of involved and comfortable with this idea that your family has intrinsically shaped you in ways you might not even understand. And I find that in the, the confines of a marriage relationship, that those get put in our face a lot, because I'm a very different person than Trisha, and she's a very different person than me, and that's okay, but it doesn't feel great. So I grew up in trailers. We lived in trailer parks, um, totally normal, some nice ones even, but one of the things I never had growing up was a basement. We had very nice garages, sometimes we would build our own pole barns in the backyard, uh, they would, they'd be great, often insulated, often with all of this space for storage. That's just something you need to know about me for this story, is garages, where sa- it's the safe space to store your stuff. Trisha, my wonderful, beautiful wife, who I love very much, if that is not clear by the end of the sermon, I'm sorry to you, and I love her very much, we're just different. Trisha always grew up with a basement, and her garage that her family had, they had a very large garage, was a place where her dad would keep all of the broken, nasty, oily stuff. And so now we live in a house with no basement, and I am totally at home. I feel comfortable. I, I offer to take totes full of clothes out to the garage all the time, and she just looks at me and goes, it's not where clothes go. That's not safe. It's not. And it's not because either of us are being rational. It's because my family had an impact on me, and it had an impact on her. Food. How many of you all have food preferences? Things you like to eat, right? So many of these are like, y'all get to put your hands up. It's easy. Trisha's family is super weird. (laughs) By my estimation. They will take, this is also really good. I'm glad that she introduced me to this, but it freaked me out the first time. They will take corn on the cob, they'll boil it, they'll stick the little corn things in it, you know so no, 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 eat it. So I'm at their house, when I'm dating Trisha, I'm having dinner, and I ask for the butter, because I butter my corn on the. cob. How many of you put butter on your corn on the cob? I like hands up, right? They look at me like I am insane. And they slide me a jar of cheese whiz. Now, I like cheese more than the next person, probably. But it's not cheese. Amen. Right? But they just, they just scoop up the cheese with slather and they eat it. And I'm trying to impress Trisha and I'm trying to impress her mom and dad because she's super cute. And I'm in high school and she's like, you get it. You eat weird stuff to impress people. It was delicious. But to them, that was just normal. That's just what their family did. Let me look through my list here. All right, one more, one more, and then I have so much Bible to share with you all today, it's going to blow your mind. So Trisha, whom I love and is great and is beautiful and she's awesome, absolutely 100% cannot be late to anything. She is the, and right? Some of you really like that. She, and having kids has just broken that out of her, right, because kids are really hard. She is the epitome of if you're on time, you're late. If you're early, you're on time. Totally reasonable, totally rational, definitely an ideology. My family is not that. My family does not want you to be late. They want you to be punctual. So one year, while we're still dating, maybe engaged at this point, we're going to Thanksgiving at my aunt's house. She's going to meet my family, and the invitation says, dinner or lunch at 1230 or whatever. I tell Trisha this, we make plans, and she's like, we have to be there at 11.45. And we compromise. It's like, okay, we're going to be there at noon. We'll get there 30 minutes early. You can talk to people, but I'm trying to talk her out of it. Like, this is crazy. Why would you do this? The invitation says 12.30. We'll be there at 12.30. So we show up at noon, and my aunt pulls me off to the side, and she's like, do you know how rude you're being right now? What do, you, what do you do? We're not ready to meet her. We're not ready for you to be. The invitation said 1230. Why are you here at noon? And Trish and I were both a lot less confident back then. So she's just like crying in the corner. I'm like, I don't know. Do you want us to leave? But if we were to show up exactly on time for Trish's Thanksgiving, they would pull her aside and say, don't you care about us? Why, why are you being so rude right now? Sorry. And I'm not even making the point that her family's right or, my, or whatever. You might have your own opinions on that, but the point I'm trying to make, the thing that I want you all to glom onto right now is that your past has changed who you are in the present in ways that you might not even notice unless your spouse or your kids or your friends are putting it right in your face. So Plato, right? Plato. This is you. And your past, your experiences, your life does things to you. So maybe your past has done this to you. Maybe your past has shaped you into what almost amounts to a bull. Maybe you're like my kids and all you make in Play-Doh is like a snake, right? That's about as, that's about as talented as my Play-Doh gets. But for some of us, for all of us, our past has done some weird things to us. If we start out with that sphere again, maybe your past has come along and made kind of a spiky bit that doesn't quite fit anywhere else. Maybe your past has come along and just taken a piece out. Maybe some part of you is nice and formed, and that's the side that you show everyone. Maybe that's the side you show yourself, because to look back here at this spiky, weird, whole ridden nobody wants to see that. You don't want to show that to anyone. And eventually, you work off just enough of these rough edges that you kind of look like everybody else. And you kind of forget that all of this back here is still you. And then you hear this wonderful promise of Jesus Where he says, come to me for freedom. Come to me to be new creation. Come to me to be born again. I love that promise. I feel like this is me. I suspect some of you feel like you've got some rough edges. And I hear that promise of Jesus, and I think, oh, that's great. Jesus is just going to come along. I'm going to say I want to be new. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, you know, pretend that's a nice sphere. We don't have all day. We just believe that Jesus has miraculously taken away all of our rough edges. I suspect you know that's not true, but let's look at some Bible stories. Because our ancestors had some trubs. Right from the get-go, we have Eve and Adam, yes? Fine, upstanding humans of the new creation, Things are going well for some amount of time. And then a snake comes along and says, hey, you want to be like God? And Eve goes, of course I want to be like God. What's he keeping from me? She eats some fruit. Adam eats some fruit. And then God comes to them in the garden. And this is when they've, you know, they've made their homemade fig leaf bathing suit and they're hiding in the bushes. And God, what does God say? God says, hey, where are you? Adam, Eve, where are you at? And what are they doing? They're hiding in the bushes going, oh, I sure hope God doesn't see me. And then just a little while later, God says, what have you done? And Eve said, it wasn't me, the snake made me. Or Adam says, it wasn't me, Eve made me do it. And Eve said, it wasn't me, the snake made me do it. Right, human, their first chance to take responsibility for something and humans are hiding half naked in the bushes saying it wasn't me, it was like that when I got here. <laughs> and we're like, okay, that's human nature, I get it, I get it. So let's jump one generation ahead with Cain and Abel. It's very, very similar. Brother kills brother, blood on the ground, hides the body somewhere, and God comes again onto the scene and goes, Hey, where's your brother? Do we really think God has no idea? I mean, we know God knows because we keep reading the story. Do we really think he didn't know Adam, and Eve, were hiding in the bushes? So Cain gets his opportunity. He can say, You know what, God? I messed up, da, da, da. No, he says, Am I my brother's keeper? I, don't ask. I don't know where anybody is. One generation later, they're still just shirking responsibility. They're still hiding from God. Where do you think Cain learned that from? There's only like three other humans around right now. (laughs) Then we jump to the patriarch. We jump to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, leave your family I'll take you to the land I want you to go. You're going to be the bearer of my promise. You're going to have a people and a place and a purpose, and it's going to be great. I'll give you a son. He's like, no, I'm too old. And God's like, I'll take care of it. Abraham, listen to this, Abraham trusts God enough to leave his whole livelihood behind and go wander in the fields. But when he gets to, to Egypt, he suddenly loses a lot of faith. And he says to his wife, okay, I know this sounds weird, wife, but I need you to pretend to be my sister so that I can sell you into the king's harem so that he doesn't kill me. It's not great. Can we agree that that is not a great strategy? Well, it might be a great strategy for survival, but it's not a great strategy for faithfulness. And the point isn't about Abraham. We're going to see his son copy this in just a second. So Abraham is so afraid, he says, uh, yeah, Mer- take, take my sister, give me lots of money. What's he do to Sarah at that point? I guess just like peace out, enjoy the harem, it's probably a good life. I got a promise to go fulfill. Okay, that happens. Abraham has lots of faithful stories, but that one happens. So then we get to his son. We get to Isaac. And Isaac has a wife, Rebecca, and These things happen again. They're about to travel. God says it's time to get moving, and they get to a place where people are wealthy. And do you know what his son does? Everybody just say the exact same thing. He does. He says, oh, hey, wife, I'm going to need you to pretend to be my sister so nobody kills me so I can get through here, okay? And, you know, you never get Sarah or Rebecca's reply to this plan. There are some conversations I wish the Bible gave us. That is one of them. So they do that thing. Where do you think he learned that strategy from? Do you think that Sarah and Abraham, in their worst moments when they're arguing, Sarah's like, yeah, you remember that time you sold me into a harem? Now go take care of the animals. Like, what are you fussing about? You go do this thing. You've got, you all are humans. You know that when an argument comes up, you pull that that ammunition out of the past, and that's some pretty good ammunition. It gets worse. Abraham, Isaac, so now we're on to Jacob and Esau. Remember, really, Hairy Dude, Esau liked to hunt, favorite of his dad? Favoritism is going to be a huge issue here because you got mommy's favorite and you got daddy's favorite. And mama says, hey, I got a plan. Pretend to be your brother so your dad gives you the birthright. This is not a high functioning, healthy family. So that favoritism happens. And we don't have time to do every single story, but I will give you every reference if you want to read 25 chapters of Old Testament history. I did, it was fun. But what happens with Jacob? He goes to try to marry a lady who he thinks is really beautiful, gets tricked, marries two of them, and then brings on their slave girls, and then has kids with all of them. And all of the wives and the slave girls are now fighting, no, I'm his favorite, no, I I gave him this son, no, curse my sister with barrenness, no, I, this sounds so miserable. And we're talking about this favoritism. That's the idea I want you to latch on here. And do you think that that favoritism had an impact on those kids? Do you think it pulled parts of them in unhealthy ways? Do you think it impacted the way they thought about each other? You don't have to have an answer because the Bible tells us. So his favorite, Jacob's favorite, is named Joseph. And Joseph is a stuck-up, cocky little boy who doesn't understand that his siblings all want to beat him up. Any of you youngest didn't realize that your siblings wanted to beat you up? You just thought you were like, hot, just great, the best stuff? Yeah, me too. So, oh my gosh, it's so bad. Joseph is the favorite. He's such the favorite. He's treated so much better than everyone else that they plot to kill him. But instead, they get talked out of it, so he just gets thrown into a pit, and they pretend he died while they sell him into slavery. Because this family line is all about selling people into slavery to get what they want. But I want you to think about what Joseph could have done. If you all could open up to Genesis chapter 50. It's the last page in Genesis. I believe it's page 44 in the Pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph has every opportunity to take his crushed up Plato past and murder his family with it. They've wandered into Egypt at a time when he's in charge of almost everything. And they don't recognize him. And they are begging for help. Oh, the times that I wish my siblings would be groveling in front of me so I could tell them no and slap them in the mouth. We had a lot of conflict growing up. But Joseph confronts his past in a much healthier way. Look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Oh, he's got like little nieces and nephews. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Have any of you ever wanted to take revenge on your siblings? It's okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. One of the happiest days of my life is when I grew larger and stronger than my stepbrother and I beat him up for the first time after 15 years of getting beat up. We never fought again after that day, and I will remember that moment for the rest of my life because I am a terrible human being. <laughs> but Joseph confronts his past, and there's more to that story where you see him working through it with, his, with his, the brother that liked him, the one that saved him. He works through it, and he reveals himself, and he says, it's okay. We were kids. Y'all were crazy, but I get to save you now. God took what you meant for bad, God took this misshapen, hurt, broken, jagged past and has redeemed it, has brought good from it, and I, as Joseph, can recognize what God is doing. Oh, there's so much more. I just, I just want to read Bible stories to you all day. That clock's moving so fast. Do you all remember Zacchaeus and the tree? I want to tell you one New Testament story. Zacchaeus was a terrible, corrupt human being who stole from his neighbor so he could be wealthy. He was a tax collector, and he skimmed so hard off the top that he was wealthier than anyone else around him. And he was so unliked that when Jesus came to town, he couldn't even get close enough to the road to see him. I mean, they also say he's short. But he could have pushed his way up if anyone would let him. You can just imagine everybody know no, Zacchaeus, no. You don't get this one, Zacchaeus. So he climbs up in a tree, and you all probably know the little kid story. Jesus shows him the most extreme grace. Jesus walks up to that tree and says, get down. I'm having dinner at your house. Let's go. Jesus finds the most broken, twisted, sharp-edged person in that town, and he says, I'm showing you grace by having dinner with you. And did that magically take away all of Zacchaeus' past? Did that miraculously make his neighbors love and forgive him? Y'all can say no. Zacchaeus experienced the grace of Jesus and he confronted his past. He said, I see where I've messed up. I'm selling my possessions. I'm giving back what I stole. I am changing my life today because of the grace that Jesus showed us. That's why it's so important for me to stand up here and say, don't ignore your past. Take the grace that Jesus has given you And the love and compassion and camaraderie that you have with Christian family and confront the parts of you that aren't where they should be. The parts of you that rub you and other people the wrong way. The grace of God is that he came along and says, I love you anyway. And I will spend your whole life helping to shape you into what I want you to be. What other people meant to hurt you I will use to help other people. What other people meant evil, I will give you freedom through. We cannot experience the freedom, the wholeness of life that God has promised us if we ignore our past. We just can't. God is calling out to us, leave your past and come over here. But we can't leave our past if we've just got our hands on our ears going, nope, 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 doesn't affect me. My family had, I'm not them. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to evaluate it. And I get it. We've had a lifetime of people telling us, oh, just, just feel better about it. Oh, just, just grow up. Oh, I can't believe you're still thinking about that. Aren't you your own person? i I'm not. Maybe you are, but I am a product of every single day of my life and every loving and sinful thing that people have done to me. That's who I am. That's who Jesus knows I am. And that's who you all are too. Our Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, sanctioned the murder of Christians And he didn't just forget about that. He talks about it in the New Testament. Paul doesn't just go, yeah, everybody loved me all of a sudden after I stopped murdering them. They were afraid to talk to him. Christians were afraid to talk to Paul because they thought he was some spy that was still going to kill them. That means he's not allowed to just ignore that whole part of his past. He had to confront it so that he could love people the way God wanted them to love. Again, I heard... I heard the the topic, right? And I just thought, duh, because you all get it. But here's the oh, no, 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 no. It takes work. You cannot do this on accident. You cannot do this passively. You either, through the grace of God and the love of the community around you, confront your past and grow, or you're just deciding to be controlled by it. And that choice is yours because Jesus doesn't really force us to do anything. So if you would allow me, I want to pray for us today that that's something we will do as a church. That the individuals here will confront their past lovingly together so that we can grow. And if you're not a Christian, if you haven't had this moment of grace where Jesus comes along and says, I love you, You're worth it. You're useful right where you are. I hope you heard that message today. Jesus will come along no matter what your past is and be your Lord and Savior. But I find this message hits me more as a Christian who's been a Christian for a long time, who may even think he's got it figured out, who might think he's hidden his rough edges well enough that I could go the rest of my life without growing or changing. That's where this message hit me this week. So church, evaluate yourself. Ask where your past impacts your present. And then just ask God, just pray to him, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to do? Will you help me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We know that we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world and that we have been hurt and distorted and traumatized by that sin. Lord, let us accept the grace of your Son, Jesus. Let us accept the work of your Holy Spirit. Let us come together as a cloud of witnesses, loving one another, throwing off the sin that entangles us. Let us let you redeem our past so that we can live in the wholeness and the freedom that you have for us. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.